You are listening to the Tri-Quarter Transmissions Episode 63. And now, here are Craig and Jeff. to the Tricorder Transmissions. This is episode number 63 for The World is Hollow and I Have Touched the Sky. We are your hosts, Craig Cohen. And Jeff Hewlett. Yes, and Jeff, this is um, another episode for us. <laughs> yeah, it's another episode. I'm, I'm wondering, is this the longest title of any episode in the original series? I think it's got to be. Um, Word count wise, yeah. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven words. Yeah, yeah, that's that's pretty lengthy. Uh, and they and and I know I I'm not sure if this was a trivia question or not during one of our supplementals, but they actually say the episode title as well. Uh, twice, I think. Yeah, so uh, which is very unique in Star Trek. Yes, yes, I think that has only happened once or twice before. Yeah, so I know we don't have much news this week, right? No, it looks like a pretty slow news week. Must be because of the holidays. Yeah. Well, I have a quick update. Oh, great. <laughs> so uh, way back in July and, and uh, late July, early August, you, everybody knows we went to Las Vegas for the Star Trek convention. Yes. And I'm not sure if we talked about it or not, but while there, we both got uh, a complete set of the Juan Ortiz uh, trading cards, which were mini trading card uh, versions of all of the episode posters that he did. Yes, we did. We both got a set of those. They were they're relatively inexpensive too. Yeah, I think it was ten bucks for the you know for for the eighty cards or whatever. Great deal. Yep. Um, and I know within a week of being home, you would frame them up and have them proudly displayed. I think uh, what in your office, right? Yeah, they're in my uh, cubicle at work. I I put them in. Well, there's eighty cards, and I put twenty cards in a frame. So I have four frames uh, hanging on long one wall of my, yeah, uh, my area. Very cool. So I finally got off my butt and decided to uh, wow. f- frame mine up. Uh, I was nervous because I don't really have the skill set for, for doing things like that. But um, it's funny. I actually had uh, a frame that was big enough for all 80 cards sitting in my closet. Wow. So I dusted it off and uh, I loaded it, uh, the cards up inside of it. And I got to say, I'm pretty proud of myself. It came out pretty nice. Yeah, I saw the picture of it, so that, that's pretty neat. Yeah, and the one thing, I know um, Juan Ortiz did the cards in production order. Right. Um, but I decided as a cool reference for myself when I'm, you know, in my hallway getting ready to record, uh, you know, this, you know, uh, uh, upcoming week's episode, I put the cards in air date order so i'd have a real quick reference guide so that made the um the framing up a little a a little more challenging because i had to sort the cards out make sure i had them in the right order and then uh double and triple check myself before i actually glued the cards to the uh (laughs) to the poster good call i i did mine in production order so it was much easier for me 
Yeah, yeah. Very neat. And if I remember, I'll uh, I'll throw up a picture uh, on the uh, the Facebook and the Twitter uh, once this episode is is out there in the world. But I thought that was worth mentioning since we didn't really have any uh, any huge news to go over. Yeah, I think actually I think it, it does bear mentioning for anybody out there who's a fan of the Juan Ortiz artwork and uh, you know going to his website and buying the prints of those can get pretty expensive, especially if you wanted to get all 80 of the episodes. So, you know, this was a great way to get, you know, little miniature versions of all of them. And, and uh, hopefully you could find deals like that out there on the internet of, of the complete set. I guess the guys who were selling them at the convention had just opened up packs and packs and packs and made full sets and then rewrapped them for sale. But, you know, it's a, it's a really great route to go. If you're, if you're looking if you like the artwork and you want to hang it up and around, but you just can't seem to afford all of the prints, it's a good way to go. Yeah, and especially if you have, you know, if, if wall space is a premium true. in your house. Very true. Good point. But, but I, I do like the miniature aspect because it's a it's a quick snapshot of every episode of the original series, you know. So it's kind of neat. It, and it, and it, um, it, it definitely uh, classes up the wall a little bit. Yeah, and they fit with each other stylistically, so it doesn't look like you got 80 different disjointed pieces of artwork. They all kind of fit and seem to look good together. So Yeah, yeah. and it, it's also the start of my much-talked-about Star Trek wall. Ah. So I've got the, you know, the, 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 the posters are the, um, the centerpiece, but then I've also got, you know, my... My cherished Gorn Captain, uh, mm-hmm. Bobby Clark autograph picture, my Barbara Luna picture, Tanya Lamani, um, Grace Lee Whitney. Um, I'll be hanging up the uh, picture of me and you with uh, Shatner as well as Nichelle Nichols. Nice. Um, I'll probably blow up the picture of um, uh, me and uh, Walter uh, Koenig. So, uh, so it should be a, a cool little uh, Star Trek wall that I, I've, I've wanted to do for a while. Uh, one thing in my house is I, I try and kind of group things together in a logical logical manner as opposed to having just haphazard, you know, spots. So uh, when my Vegas portion of the wall ends, the Star Trek wall starts, which is also kind of a nice little through line because, you know, Vegas and Star Trek are so connected for us. Yes, definitely. So I look forward to seeing a photo of your completed wall. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So episode time? Yeah, I guess I just want to send... Um, Holiday wishes out there for everyone, and uh, thank you for, uh, for for taking the ride with us. For uh, I guess this is our second year that we're that we're, we're closing out, mm-hmm. and uh, I know we picked up a lot of new listeners during the year, and uh, so thank you all uh, for for taking the time to listen, and uh, and for also uh, giving us all of your feedback. It's it's really appreciated. Yeah. Oh. Oh. For sure. No question. This rest assured. This we're not taking time off for the holiday so we will be producing uh more new episodes so we 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 still have i think two more sundays uh in in the year so we'll we'll have episodes up uh, for both of those sundays so so fear not intrepid listener you will not be disappointed and i guess with that we can roll into for the world is hollow and i have touched the sky let's do it all right air date for the original airing was november 8th 1968 the original remastered episode aired on january 27th of 2007 all right and the enterprise finds an asteroid that contains a generational ship on a collision course with an inhabited planet dun 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 (laughs) that's why i throw that in there we haven't heard that on the show in a while yes 
All right. Well, cue your DVDs, your Netflix or Blu-rays or what have you up. We are going to start our scene-specific commentary in three, two, one. So not much better than a Star Trek episode starting with a red alert. Yeah, I like that this one opens up on something other than the Enterprise, too. Yeah. So it opens up on some weird-looking missiles firing towards the Enterprise. Supposedly, that shot right there of Chekhov is mm-hmm. footage from another episode, kind of like stock footage, where uh, it's interesting what they reuse and what they don't reshoot. I guess, you know, with the budgetary constraints so tight as they were in season three, I guess, you know, if, if there was a, a shot they could recycle from somewhere else, they would instead of shooting it anew. Wow. And even with the like the line of dialogue he said there, or was that? No, this the side, the, this, the, the side shot. Oh, OK. Yeah, the side shot where it was just him and Sulu beyond. All right. Um, yeah. Yeah. The other the other thing that's funny about this opening was it seems like the trend is. Spock's sort of hanging out in the captain's chair. Yeah, I like that. Uh, yeah, I mean, it seems like a couple episodes in a row now. Um, it's sort of been that, you know, Kirk's not on the bridge. He's off doing something else, you know, playing golf or whatever. Well, you know, he needs a break every now and then. Yeah. But uh, you notice notice uh, Kirk ordered uh, to prepare phaser banks one and two. I don't know if we've heard him mention uh, multiple phaser banks like that before by number. Yeah. So interesting. And do you see that that insignia that uh, Nurse Chapel's wearing? Ooh. It's the star with a with a medical cross in the middle of it. Oh, right. Yeah. I don't recall seeing that uh, prior to this. We may have. Yeah. But I don't recall seeing that. I'll have to go back and look at other Nurse Chapel episodes. There aren't many where you, you get a lot of, um, you know, footage where you can really get a look at the outfit too much. But yeah. But I, I like that she was having a little bit of a uh, verbal altercation there with, with McCoy. And, and to somebody who's watched this one time, you know, this was their first time watching this, you may have thought there would be some sort of a uh, disciplinary action going on for Nurse Chapel there. Like, you know, she was, she wanted the captain's intervention, but it doesn't turn out to be that way. Yeah. It actually turns out that she was m- concerned for Dr. McCoy. Yeah, who has just let... Uh, Kirk know that he's got a uh, a disease, which we won't um, try to pronounce here. Yeah, a terminal disease, um, and he's got about a year to live. Yeah. So this episode has dropped two bombs on us in a, in the stinger. So we got the Enterprise under attack by missiles from some unknown location, and McCoy has an incurable disease. So uh, interesting that the it front loads that much. Usually we get these. Uh, things added as we're watching the episode you know we'll get a one bomb in the stinger and then you wait till partway through the episode and they'll drop another one on you and then maybe drop a a time constraint on you later but this one front loads a lot of the issues yeah and this also feels like uh i'm being written off the episode moment (laughs) yeah well there you go that's something we talked about last week with um with Chekhov. You know, if the, if Day of the Dove had been made, you know, in modern times, would that have been a, you know, kill off checkoff moment? And this episode, now that you mention it, could very well be a if it was made in, in today's uh, television uh, universe landscape and, and all the, the downtrodden, violence, depressing TV we have. This could have been one of the kill off uh, McCoy episodes. 
Yeah, as he decides whether or not he's going to uh, re-up his contract. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. Uh, Or they replace him. Yeah. Midstream by uh, with some other actor playing the same role. Ooh. Yeah, that would be something. So we're approaching the coordinates from whence the missiles came. And we found, I found this intriguing. It's an asteroid that's 200 miles in diameter. Mm Mm-hmm. 200 miles in diameter. You know, the state of New Jersey, from its topmost to its bottommost, where we are, is 130 miles long. Yeah. So that asteroid is, uh, you know, quite a, a lot larger than New Jersey, than the state of New Jersey. So that's pretty big. Yeah, but when you think about what its purpose is, it, it doesn't seem nearly as big as it probably should be. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, it depends on how many people are on board, but, you know, we can fit a lot of people here in New Jersey. I wonder if you think about it, there's, you know, people who live up in the northern part of our state that have probably never seen the southern part of our state. I wonder if that's the same for the asteroid. I wonder if there's people who live on, like, you know, the top level of the asteroid have never seen the bottom level of the asteroid. (laughs) Stands to reason, right? If If it's bigger than New Jersey. Yeah, I mean, there are people out there who, um, you know, who never leave the the town they grew up in. It's true. That's true. So I wonder, you know, speaking even on a smaller scale, you have 430 crewmen in the Enterprise. Do you think there's crew members who've never met each other? Oh, wow. I I have to imagine. Big ship. That there's at least been, you know, um, you know, the Enterprise mixers and stuff like that. And they might do <laughs> social events. Yeah. You know, <laughs> first Friday parties. events and stuff like that. Uh, team building exercises. Fish camp. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, great stuff. So we've learned there's another uh, another bomb they just dropped on us. More front loading that this asteroid slash ship that's 200 miles in diameter is on a collision course with a planet called Darren 5, which has a population of approximately 3,724,000,000 people. So mm-hmm. if this huge apparatus were to crash into that planet, we could lose almost 4 billion lives. A lot of people. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's an awful lot of people. And look at this chapel in the transporter room. Yeah, just I guess so she could give those um, in, those encouraging words to... McCoy that you can do a lot in a year or a lot can happen in a year. Yeah. So I I like that, that McCoy is insistent that he wants to stay on the enterprise and keep doing his duties uh, as he is fit to do. But Kirk automatically called for an immediate replacement. Yeah. (laughs) He's like, nah, get this guy out of here. (laughs) You know what? He's dying. Get him off the ship. Damn it. It's a liability. But uh, once again, they left Scotty in charge, by the way. Oh yeah. Look at that. Yeah, let's put Scotty in charge. But, you know, here's another moment that I wondered. You know, usually, usually I'm pointing out where Spock is the, you know, the, the linchpin of the episode. And without Spock, they wouldn't have been able to, to get out of a certain scenario. But, you know, spoiler alert. So cover your ears if, uh, if you, you haven't seen this episode before and you're watching it for the first time now. Cover your ears now. If McCoy hadn't been so insistent on going with them and he had followed Kirk's will and stayed aboard the enterprise he would never have gotten cured yeah Hmm. so important plot point there for the episode you can uncover your ears now everybody <laughs> not that you can hear me say that if your ears are covered hopefully uh you, you think to uncover your ears but spoiler is over 
and some strange pink tubes we're seeing here. But an uh, interesting note about the set here is that they used a forced perspective and they actually made the pink tubes in the back smaller to give the illusion of depth. Ah, cool. So you see the pink tubes way in the background there. So they actually made them smaller. They're very, actually very close to the tubes in front. So I'm, I'm, this is one of the things I'm really looking forward to. Uh, these are the Voyages Volume 3 uh, to read more about this, uh, this set itself because I was kind of fascinated when I read that. So I'm, I'm interested to read about the, the, the building of this, uh, this set because we don't see these tubes uh, really. This is uh, yeah. the first time. They were obviously constructed for this. Yeah, and, and ideally... The next time we talk, um, we'll both have the book. Yeah, mine shipping, mine shipping. Yeah, I believe ours both shipped the same day. Yeah. So once again, we have bizarre uh, male costumes with really bizarre headgear. It almost looks like scuba uh, masks that yeah. were sort of painted, doesn't it? Yeah. It, I don't. I don't. I don't know what that's supposed to. What those headgear pieces are supposed to be? It looks like almost like a rubber hat with, uh, or it's like almost like a rubber tube that's bent. And like there's a covered uh, piece in the front that's got jewels mounted in it, but only the men are wearing them. Yeah, not, not the female. So, and uh, again, here we are with more edged weapons, swords, little mm -hmm. short swords. So these people live inside this technological marvel, two hundred uh, miles wide, but still have swords. So I guess uh, you know guns or or. Uh, other or more electronic means of defense were uh, were not given to them, or they do not possess them somehow. Really it's a great interesting shot here. Yeah, yeah, really through the stairs, sort of coming down, very uh, very artistic. And yeah. that is director um, Tony Leader, um, real name uh, Anton. He went by the name Tony for this episode. He died in 1988, the age of 75. He also directed Perry Mason, Sea Hunt, The Twilight Zone. Leave it to Beaver, Rawhide, Lost in Space, and six episodes of Gilligan's Island. Wow. Um, among many other TV shows during his career. Well, that's a big departure from Star Trek. Yeah. Zone, Gilligan's Island. So that's that's interesting. You have a director who can do comedy yeah. and drama and sci-fi. That's pretty versatile. Yeah. Pretty cool. And another member of the the one director, one and done club of of Star Trek. <laughs> one and done. That's a it's a it's a growing club. Yeah. That is a growing club. So interesting sets in this episode. Yeah, I love I love these interior sets. This one in particular is very very neat. Uh, it's almost like a star shaped room from the inside. Yeah, like if you were to go outside and look at the room from outside, it would be the shape like a star. But inside, you're seeing you know the internal uh, the, the angular edges and the right. Yeah, it's pretty neat. Mm -hmm. And the uh, the oracle here that we're seeing is is almost like a marble type of an obelisk in the, on the one side of the room with like a single light in the middle. So mm -hmm. yeah. Interesting makeup job on her eyes too. Yeah. You know, we were talking uh, on day of the dove about the Klingon female <laughs> oh, yeah. eye makeup uh, being a, a detractor. But in this episode, this, this eye makeup on, on this, um, on this, uh, I, the name of the race of the people uh, is Ooh. escaping me right now. We haven't actually gotten to it yeah. yet. Uh, Fabrini. Yeah. Uh, the Fabrini woman here, her her eye makeup is actually yeah. pretty neat. Yeah, yeah. Natira. She is the what the high priestess. Yes, she's the high priestess, and uh, obviously the guys in purple and red are her lackeys. Yeah, <laughs> with the with the rubber scuba hats on. 
So, uh, so we learn that these people uh, have been on a uh, interstellar space flight for ten thousand years. So, how many generations of these people have lived on that ship for that many years? Oh yeah, it's an an insane amount. Yeah, pretty astounding when you think. I mean, if, if their if their lifespan is the same as ours. I mean, say generously, they live to 100. That's a lot of lifespans, a lot of lifetimes and children being born and old people dying off. And so it's no wonder that they've kind of lost the original vision, right? And they've become so subservient to the computer. Yeah, yeah. But the also the, the real interesting aspect of the episode for me is these are people that aren't aware. Right. Um, that they're traveling through space on a... a a man-made um, satellite, if you will, satellite as opposed to, yeah, <laughs> you know. I mean, if you think about it, the Earth is really just a, a, a big spaceship. True. Uh, um, True. But uh, this was uh, this is man-made. So it, it creates an interesting sort of, you know, set of thoughts. Yeah, it certainly does. Another and interesting it, thought, by the way, just, just mm-hmm. to not to take a quick aside, we can jump right back into that. Kirk. Uh, kept McCoy's secret for approximately 12 and a half minutes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, I, you know, I, I think, you know, with the, you know, the, this trio here, and we'll see. I mean, McCoy sort of doesn't seem bothered by it. No, he took it rather, rather well that he's got a one-year death sentence. Yeah. No, but I also mean the fact that Kirk told Spock. Oh, yeah. Well, I yeah, I, I think that... It, it was only a matter of time before, you know, somebody else found out and it better it be Spock than, you know, some lesser member of the crew. Yeah. And and I really like this this physical moment between McCoy that instantly keys him in that that Spock's that Spock knows. Um, and it, it, it's <clears throat> excuse me. It's kind of neat because it's like a, a nonverbal form of communication from Spock, which is which is really, really rare. Yeah, and if you looked at Spock's face, they showed a, you know, an angle where you could see Spock's arm reaching towards the camera, and you could see the look on Spock's face. It it almost looked as if he was conveying some kind of emotion there. Exactly. You know, empathizing with McCoy and letting him know that although I I can't really show outward emotion, I I do have some feelings on this matter. Mm-hmm. So pretty cool to show that that unspoken bond between the two is we're used to seeing them quibbling and fighting with each other over little things, but, you know, they really have a, a, a feel for each other. And now here comes possibly my least favorite character in Star Trek, the original series. Really? <laughs> I don't know. There's something about this guy that just bugs me. Hmm. I don't know if it's the way he sells things later on or the, the performance or the wig he's wearing. Well, um, Perhaps this little factoid will change your mind. Well, I know we've seen him before. We have, but this yes. is the only regular Trek episode to feature three actors from the cage. Oh, wow. Okay, cool. So this guy here is um, John Lormer. He played Dr. Haskins yes. in the cage. Who was the, who was, and, and of course, Leonard Nimoy's uh, Spock. Who's the third person? Major Barrett. Oh, right, right. Okay, yeah, different character. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so you've got your Nurse Chapel. So uh, we're not counting the menagerie in that, by the way, because that was recycled footage. 
This is three actual actors who were yeah. part of the cage. Uh-huh. And Lorimer was also in uh, another episode. Yes. Um, he was in, he played uh, Tamar in Ret- The Return of the Archons. Yes. You are correct. So there were two actors from the cage in that one, but this one has three. So yeah. pretty cool. Yeah. It, it, that is really neat. And here's the line being delivered. Um, this this is, uh, he's he's basically talking about climbing a mountain and touching the sky. Yeah, I guess his only purpose in being in this episode is to tell our heroes uh, that there's something sinister going on here. Yeah. That, uh, you know, some force is keeping these people oppressed. And we know how Kirk loves to save oppressed peoples especially (laughs) those who are oppressed by a machine and or computer right so kirk versus the computer again yeah Um, version whatever version yeah 7.0 and i love how (laughs) spock is the one that tells kirk listen man you know the prime directive is in full swing here and telling these people that they're on a spaceship because they believe that they're on a planet so telling these people that they're on a spaceship and breaking their immersion into their world is breaking the prime directive. So you can't do it. So now they're going to have to look for another way to, to stop this planet slash spaceship from being diverted or to divert it from hitting uh, Darren five. And, mm-hmm. You know, it's you- nice to know that aliens have toothpicks, by the way. Too. <laughs> yes. There's toothpicks in those melon pieces back there on those trays. So, uh, mm-hmm. To, to get to the prime directive, though, hmm. this is um, a race of people who have been lied to, ultimately. Yes. Um, for 10,000 years here. Would it really be that against the prime directive to sort of right the, the ship, if you will, um, and let these people know that, you know, their true origins or that, you know, where they came from? I, you know, I, 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 I think technically, yes, it is. But if they could have figured out a way to divert the asteroid without cluing the people in, I think that would be the optimal solution to the problem, which I don't know why they couldn't do it with some elaborate force fields or something and try to push it in another direction or otherwise alter its course. But wouldn't it like even like a phaser blast do it? I, I don't know. I, I don't know if that would do more damage than... Yeah, I'm not really sure on that one. But I, you, we've seen them do some elaborate stuff with force fields and using force fields to, to change things and, and uh, otherwise tow things along with them. Or, or, you know, this is pretty big, though, 200 miles wide. Yeah. Maybe it's too big. But, I mean, the other thing is, do you think that um, th- this civilization is just one group um, that lives in a, a pretty small um, area of, of this of this ship because you have a high priestess here. Mm-hmm. Um, there aren't multiple high priestess. Oh yeah. We don't really know. I guess we're, we're under the assumption that there's only one. And I don't think they ever tell us how many people are actually on board. Yeah. And I thing. guess, I guess that's really where the, 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 you know, the devices in their head sort of come in handy. They really are a way to control the population. Yeah. And you know, I, I, hesitate to say this because it's probably a very evil thing to say but i bet you mirror kirk would love to have that technology (laughs) and just build in agonizers to his entire crew so he doesn't have to carry on little things anymore 
Oh, that's a really neat uh, crossover idea. Where that's really cross... what they have, right? Yeah, yeah. They're pretty agonizers. Much, yeah. yeah. I don't know. That would be a, a great um, a great Star Trek novel, I bet, um, where you've had the, the mirror universe uh, encountering this asteroid. What a, what a cool concept, Jeff. Yeah, it would be interesting. And, you know, uh, speaking of which, I'm glad that we got on that topic because uh, I'll take a quick diversion here. And I will say, and we usually don't mention novels, but I thought this was a good thing to mention because this is a uh, something that happens in a novel. The Mirror Universe novel Sorrows of the Empire, mm-hmm. the Mirror McCoy actually does die of this same illness. Z- I'm going to try it. Uh, Xenopolycythemia. Nailed it. I think I might have got it. And yeah. He dies in 2269. And uh, because they, well, the theory is that the ISS Enterprise, the Mirror Enterprise, uh, either never encountered the Fabrini asteroid or destroyed it. Oh, okay, yeah. And so, yeah. he was succeeded by our favorite, Dr. Mbenga. So, nice. uh, yeah, so Dr. Mbenga has a future in the Mirror Universe, but uh, doesn't appear he has much of a future here in the real universe because McCoy lives on. Yeah, so they, it looks like the Mirror Universe uh, ship might have tried my phaser uh <laughs> Oh, good call. Solution. <laughs> yeah, that's probably what happened. Mirror Kirk had a, a moment of mercy and actually tried to divert the asteroid, but wound up destroying it instead. Yeah. So now we've got the high priestess. This is basically her uh, putting the moves on McCoy, right? Yeah, I love this. Mm-hmm. I love this. How emasculated Kirk must be feeling. Because <laughs> Chekhov got the girl a couple episodes back, and uh, here's McCoy uh, again. This is his, only his uh, his second a girl the entire series, right? Yeah. The first one what? was a monster. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Salt vampire, yeah. Ah, go McCoy. Yeah, I don't know. It almost seems like maybe, uh, I bet you uh, uh, Shatner was checking the series Bible to make sure the uh, the Kirk uh, wooing women uh, pages hadn't fallen out by, by accident uh, between <laughs> seasons two and three. Yeah, who knows who Shatner pissed off and uh, to get written out that way. <laughs> I thought it was in his contract. Uh, too funny. Is her hairdo like kind of a miniature Rand hairdo with a ponytail sticking out of the back? Oh, yeah. Look at that. She's got like a little beehive action going mm-hmm. on in the back there. So now we've got a little bit of a hive mind thing going on. Yeah. There. So uh, Natira told them that they're now friends of the entire ship and everybody knows about them. So now as they're walking through the hallway... It sure does appear that there's some sort of a you know, mass mailer that went out to say, hey, if you see these guys in these funny clothes, they're our friends now. Don't run from them. And everybody's kind of like, ooh, watch them walking through the hallway. So little interesting little tidbits going on here. This is um, There's definitely something that controls them all or manipulates them all or, or uh, is able to uh, communicate to everybody in, in one quick and easy step. But now we're back to uh, McCoy. They, they, she's trying to convince McCoy to stay on the uh, on the Yanada with her uh, as her husband, and uh, he's about to spill the beans here about his medical condition. And I found this part very fascinating because McCoy tells her uh, essentially that he's lived a very lonely life. Yeah, on board the Enterprise. And uh, that that that's kind of sad. Well, yeah, and I, I think we've hit upon this probably early in the series is, you know, the dynamics of 
of going on a five-year mission like this where, you know, it's not like future Star Treks, the next generation, or even DS9 where, like, you know, Cisco's got his son on board with him. These are all people that are pretty much taking a vow to Starfleet. That's true. That's true. But, you know, I, I don't know if a lot of other people on the Enterprise would say they live lonely lives, though. Especially yeah. because, you know, I mean, you're true. You're on a five year mission, but, you know, he he seems to imply this almost a deep, uh, you know, sorrow over the fact that he's not had a, any female contact. And I guess we're supposed to believe that Nancy Crater, the real Nancy Crater was, you know, his one and only shot. Yeah. You know, but is that a, is that is that his problem? I mean, is it is, has he sworn off even looking for women or. You know, is he married to his profession or I don't know. I, I, I don't I don't know if it's a condition that that he is self-imposed or, or what. Yeah. So well, at any rate, um, she has yet to convince him, but uh, he did get a little makeout scene there. So question that, 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 that I have in my mind is that, you know, he's admitted to having this disease. So and it's apparently it's not contagious. So he can't give it to other people by via touch because Kirk has touched him and Spock has touched him, and it's not transmissible by uh, fluid exchange because he just kissed um, uh, kissed Natira. So it, I'm left to imagine that it's a genetic disorder. It could be, but it, it could also be bloodborne. Potentially, I mean, I, I guess where would he have contracted it from? Well, yeah, I mean, but I mean that could be how it's how you how you pass it. Potentially, but yeah, then we'd have to assume he caught it from somewhere. Yeah, well, you know, he doesn't wear gloves when he's uh, when he's doctoring. True. I mean, I get well. That would mean another crew member probably would have had to have had it, and he had to do some sort of a medical procedure where he was exposed to their blood. Now, you would think that in the future, that contaminated blood would be a thing of the past. Like you would be completely shielded from it because you know we're 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 pretty close to that today. Where you know, unless you don't use your uh, protective gear properly. You can be protected from anything, uh, bloodborne or airborne. Mm-hmm. You know, if you have the proper hazmat materials. So, at any rate, Kirk and Spock have infiltrated the Oracle Sanctum. Yeah, and it was pretty cool. Like uh, Spock cracked the code. Yeah, he was. Well, he was watching very closely when Natira used the combination dance on the door. Uh, when they came in prior to this. So he was able to repeat the process. And, you know, they're kind of theorizing on uh, the creators of this ship being looked upon as gods. Some interesting marble-looking obelisks here in the room, too, with some uh, star charts and things emblazoned on them. But Yeah, I guess it's the solar system of that uh, of that planet. Yeah, and Spock has identified them as the Fabrini people Mm -hmm. so fascinating usually with these types of situations spock is is unable to identify the aliens but in this one they are a known alien race yeah and yeah it's it always amazes me how much knowledge uh kirk and spock and other crew members have of of the world around them Mm -hmm. 
I guess it's a commentary on the the education system in the 23rd century. <laughs> I guess so. And you know, the thing that kind of stuns me about it is though that Spock, you know, they they say that the 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 Fabrini people's homeworld was destroyed 10,000 years in the past. So that was well before the Federation and well before uh space travel for Earth. I get, do, how do the Vulcans know about the Fabrini people? Mm. Have they been traveling in space for 10,000 years? Because that's an awful long time. Yeah, especially considering first contact doesn't really even occur um, for for what, a couple hundred years before the, the original series. Yeah, and if the Fabrini people's planet was destroyed and these people in this asteroid are the only ones left from that society and they haven't had any outside contact, how did the story of their planet being destroyed get out? For the Vulcans to even know in the first place. Good question. I don't know. Uh, delve deeper. Uh oh. They're uh, caught. Then they wanted to use that effect again. I think. <laughs> yeah. That visual effect of uh, Kirk and Spock getting electrocuted. That's pretty cool looking. Yeah. So are they, they were caught here because I guess what the, um, the the Oracle was activated, whereas before they were in a room where the or- Oracle hadn't really kicked on yet. I guess so. I wasn't sure if it was that or that they touched the obelisk in a certain way or because uh, I guess we find out in a little bit that the, there's three buttons on top of that thing Kirk just touched. And it looks like his fingers touching one of them, but I don't know. I, I, I'm going to I'm going to go with your answer, though, and say that it's because the Oracle was awake. Yeah. Yeah. So this is um, we might as well talk about Natira. Sure. This is uh, actress Kate Woodville. Um, she died in 2013 at the age of 74, um, but she had retired from acting in the late seventies. Um, you probably saw her on episodes of the Rockford files, wonder woman or eight is enough. Hmm. Very good. Very good. She's very good in this episode. She's great. It's a great, great character, great performance, great look all around. Um, yeah, solid. Definitely. And, and now McCoy is letting her know that he's staying. I wonder if this is a Kirk tactic that he's employing. <laughs> because he's using he's using her emotional attachment to him to get Spock, Kirk and Spock off the hook. Yeah. So they'd be given a death sentence for uh, committing a sacrilegious act against the Oracle. And I guess as high priestess, she is charged with carrying out that sentence. And uh, he is trying to get her to let them go back to the Enterprise. As opposed to being killed, and he is um, kind of requesting it and saying, "You know, do this for me. I'm going to stay. We can be together. Uh, just let my friends go." I, that seems very Kirk-like to me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Maybe he's picked up. On, he wears a pinky ring. You know what? I kind of feel like we saw that one other episode. Maybe we did. I, I, for some reason, I don't remember it. But you, maybe you're right. But... I thought I remember you mentioning it. Oh, maybe I did. I'm going to have to go back and listen to every episode now. All right. Well, let me know which one it was in. <laughs> so, yeah, we just saw uh, McCoy as a pinky ring. So now he's breaking the news to Kirk and Spock, and I love this moment. Yeah, well, where Kirk orders them. <laughs> Kirk orders McCoy to come back to the Enterprise, and McCoy refuses. Like, yep, what are you going to do, Kirk? <laughs> what are you going to do? And this is, seems to be a moment where, um, you know, Kirk would be kind of beside himself. It's if a regular, you know, lowly ensign uh, refused an order, 
that sucker would go right in the brig. Yeah. Or be court martial disciplined otherwise. But this is McCoy, man. This is his buddy. Mm-hmm. And he's dying. Yeah. So maybe Kirk's like, well, you know, I guess I kind of have to let it slide. Because, I mean, he could, he could draw his phaser out and force McCoy to go back to the Enterprise. But he's not going to do that. So I wonder if we could say that McCoy is actually the MVP of this episode uh, instead mm. of Spock. Because if it wasn't for McCoy convincing Natira to let them go, Kirk and Spock would be toast. Yeah. Yeah. And I love how McCoy has to back up a few steps to allow uh, Kirk and Spock to beam out. He doesn't want to accidentally be caught or have Kirk grab him and pull him into the beam. <laughs> like, <laughs> fool you. <laughs> yeah. And we had Scotty asking why McCoy wasn't being beamed up. Yeah, it's really strange to me that Scotty would question Kirk's order like that. You know, there could be plenty of reasons why McCoy would, would stay down there. Yeah, agreed. To treat some people or, or you know, to, 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 to gain some medical knowledge or whatnot. But I, I thought it was interesting that, that they wrote that in there to have uh, Scotty ask that question. And now we're going to see McCoy get the implant put into his head, which I thought was kind of fascinating. That uh, in order to allow him to live amongst the people... The oracles decreed that he must have his apparatus implanted into his head, which just happened. Doesn't appear to have any effect. But he has the discipline chip, the uh, installed agonizer in his brain. Now, question for you, Craig. Mm-hmm. Another question. So McCoy did not go back to the Enterprise. He opted to stay down here. Does that mean he left all of his stuff up there? All of his extra changes of clothes, his casual clothes, you know, his personal belongings. Yeah, I guess it's a clean break. He's yeah. gonna start. He's gonna start over. I guess so. His wallet, his keys, his iPhone. <laughs> he left everything on the Enterprise. Well, he he does he does keep his communicator. He does. That's a good point. I'm surprised, and that's that's a Starfleet issue. I'm surprised yeah. that wasn't uh, that wasn't uh, you know, confiscated from him at the time of his uh, reneging his duties. Yeah, it doesn't seem like. I'm surprised. Um, Spock let that slip. You think he would have been about the, uh, you know, the debrief? Definitely. You would think Spock would be all about regulations, but you know, because Kirk's got to account for all of those, um, all those communicators and phasers, doesn't he? Yeah, I'm, I'm sure there's a, a, a an Enterprise inventory that that happens. Yeah. Hey, is that book familiar to you, Craig? <laughs> Look familiar? It doesn't. It's Chicago Mobs of the 20s. Is it? It is. Awesome. Just redressed. Yes, it is from a piece of the action, one of Craig's favorite episodes. Oh, that's awesome. Very cool. Yeah, pretty cool reused uh, little prop there. Yeah. Yeah. So this is where um, McCoy sort of learns a truth Yeah. about possibly being able to to redirect the asteroid. Yeah, so what, what's what been revealed here is there's an instruction manual hidden in one of the obelisks in the room. Great shot. Oh, that's wonderful. And um, the, the high priestess can access this book whenever she wants, but chooses not to. And uh, it is only to be opened upon reaching the final destination of the asteroid ship. 
So fascinating that they have all of the answers at their fingertips, but no one is curious enough to look at it. I guess under a threat of pain or death. Yeah. You know, they, they stay away from it. And here's something that we don't see very often. We see a high-ranking Starfleet officer actually talking to Kirk. Yeah. Usually Starfleet's orders come through Uhura and she relays them over. But you know, this is Kirk in his quarters taking a direct uh, Skype call. from uh from starfleet headquarters and we see yet another uh, starfleet high-ranking officer we've never seen before but you know only only a couple times throughout the series have we ever seen a direct contact with starfleet like that a visual direct contact yeah and they're basically being called off yeah kirk has been relieved of all responsibility in uh in in response to the asteroid and starfleet will quote-unquote handle it Mm-hmm. So I thought that was kind of neat that we we get to hear Starfleet's orders directly. Yeah, and here's McCoy cutting in, and sort of a callback to the the old man. Um, you see, he's being punished for for sharing information that he's not supposed to be sharing. Yep, and he's convulsing on the floor. So interesting. A couple of other things this calls into question for me. That you know, I, I don't, I don't really like to pick these episodes apart. But when, when some, something like this happens, and it becomes obvious to me that another easy solution could have been reached, uh, obviously the communicators work from inside the asteroid to the ship, right? Mm-hmm. Now, why wouldn't Kirk and Spock? Now, like we've seen that they have beamed directly inside the planet into the room where McCoy is laying on the floor. Now, why couldn't they just beam directly into the Oracle's control chamber? <laughs> you yeah. would think they now they know where the Oracle's room is, they could easily beam directly into that little hidden room behind the Oracle. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, could, Spock could scan the room and see, oh, there's a little hidden room back there. But I love how they have uh, Spock has this little. A pen-looking apparatus that's designed specifically, it's in the tricorders, designed specifically to remove uh, head implants. Yeah. That he just pulled out the implant that was in McCoy's head. And uh, Natira actually knows now. She she knows that he's no longer part of the people. I wonder, did she actually see the thing being removed or does she sense it yeah. that he's been freed? Mm-hmm. Because he's no longer plugged into the hive mind. Interesting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Kind of an early Borg-like thing, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of Borg seeds throughout the original series, as we've pointed out. Yeah. They seem to be a natural progression of things. So I like how Spock can sub in as a doctor, too, when necessary. Oh, sure. Yeah. He's, He's everything. Like, I, Spock's everything. I got this. He's the Vulcan jack of all trades. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. So earlier this season, we talked about things that happened on this date when the episode aired. Oh, boy. I so I was that. looking at November 8th, 1968, um, and uh, there's some uh, interesting stuff that happened on this date. Um, the, the, the Vienna Convention on Road Traffic uh, was signed to facilitate international road traffic and to increase road safety by standardizing the uniform traffic rules among the signatories. Um, so that's kind of neat. Um and also on this date in history, uh, Cynthia Lennon was granted divorce from John Lennon. Oh, get out. Yeah. Wow. And and from that day, poor poor Julian Lennon <laughs> would be mistreated. Yeah, well, we got a good song out of it, right? Uh, we got Hey Jude out of it. 
Yes, we did. Yeah. Yes, we did. And Julian has become a, a, a good songwriter and musician in his own right. He's got some good records under his belt. Yeah, I I, I know I was a big, big fan of what? Velote? That's that a good the, one. Yeah. And uh, Too Late for Goodbyes. But that was the, the earlier pop stuff. And some of, I, I don't want to digress too far from Star Trek here, but uh, some of his recent albums are very good. So I'll leave it at that. So Kirk is now fully breaking the Prime Directive. He's in yeah. uh, to hell with the Prime Directive mode once again. And he's revealing to Natira the truth of her own existence. Yeah. And he even offers to take the uh, the little chip out of her head. Yeah. Now, now do you buy this? Do you, do, I mean, clearly she she's learning this information. But do you think the High Priestess never would have been clued in or never would have gotten an indication? Um about their their true nature well i i think if you follow the logic that the oracle as we know it is a a computer which Mm -hmm. is programmed to do a specific function and that's just to keep the people under control and keep them in line until we reach our destination so i don't think the computer would be capable of wavering on that that programming so it stands to reason that she would never have gotten anything official. Right. She may have had her suspicions, but I don't think the Oracle could ever have given her any indication. The only way she probably would have learned about it is if she was curious enough to grab that book and mm-hmm. read. But I, I don't know if the Oracle would let her do that. I think yeah. it's it's programmed to protect that truth at all costs and keep the people from uh, from knowing exactly what's really going on until they actually reach their final destination, which at which point all would be revealed. Uh, I, I don't really know why the people that created this ship would do that, but um, I, I'm not sure. It, it would be hard for me to, to really uh, to come up with a really conv- a convincing theory that I could believe right. in my mind, because you would think that the, the people of the, the Fabrini planet would want these people on the ship to continue uh, with their, you know, their society. This seems to be a whole different society, yeah, than what the, the society on the actual planet would have been. Mm-hmm. And I mean, really, what's the downside to letting people these people know? I mean, it would it just be sort of shattering their reality to the point where they they wouldn't be able to comprehend, you know, the situation they were in, or would people all of a sudden decide we don't want to be on a a ship anymore? Yeah, would they take control of it and go other places? Mm-hmm. But but yeah. how do you even do that? You have to get into the room behind the Oracle to do that. Yeah. But another question is that when, when the, the Fabrini people built this ship in the first place, the first generation of people to be put on that ship had to know the truth. Normalized. They lived it. They were normalized. Oh, yeah. We, the <laughs> men in black showed up and zapped them all. But in all seriousness, they would have to know the truth. So did yes. they all conspire to raise their children with uh, the lies? Yeah. I mean, how yeah. did that work? Yeah, you'd think that there would at least be, and maybe if if we really followed this sort of society through multiple episodes or their own series, maybe you'd hear that talk among certain people. Um, but I don't know if you've got if you've got a society that's got, you know, their thoughts are ultimately being controlled by the oracle. Mm. Um, negative discussions uh, or, you know, the passing of rumors could result really in true 
you know, in, in, in that, that agon that head agonizer being activated. It's like it zapped the truth out of him. Yeah. yeah. So the, the Oracle's pretty much lost his, his stroke here. Yes. Well, he knows he can't agonize them. So he needs to come up with another way uh, to, to stop them from looking at the book. So I guess he's going to try to cook them. Yeah. Yeah. I guess this, this little chamber, it doubles as a kiln. Yes. So they're in a giant oven now. And we're going to have uh, Vulcan kebabs and human kebabs in a minute here. Uh, it, the, the temperature is rising very quickly, and it's a really cool warping effect they use. They have a red light here, like a red cast to the to the frame, and they have this really interesting uh, you know, film-bending warping effect mm -hmm. simulating the heat yeah. in the room. I thought that was really cool that they, they went that far instead of just having a red light. Yeah, they went the extra step to give you that kind of rippling effect. Oh, yeah. Very cool. And I, I love, once again, I love how Spock can immediately understand and know how to operate and or repair any alien technology he comes across. <laughs> it's amazing. He, he's uh, the, the Mag MacGyver of the future. Yes, he, he read the manual. He knows how to get into the room. And now he's immediately going to know how to de deactivate the heat. So he had all these buttons and knobs and doohickeys uh, that we see. The camera's panning all around the room. He knows exactly which... Well, the one he goes to is red. So I guess red equals heat. Yeah, and also, though, this is a, a, a very, very advanced machinery. Oh, yeah. That seemingly doesn't need any maintenance. Not at all. Yeah, um, self-repairing. Yeah, which is a pretty amazing concept in itself. True. True. That's also kind of Borg-like, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, the self-perpetuating machine. It's almost like, the, you know, what's with the, the Terminators, right, from, uh, you know, from the future. Yeah. The self-repairing machines. It's almost a little too hard to buy into. Yeah, that's a little far-fetched. Uh, well, maybe, maybe, there's, uh, maybe there's people on the ship that are trained to repair the machines. They just don't know what the machines do. Yeah, but but think about this. You've got an oracle in your life that mm -hmm. is sort of your your god. Yeah. And then you go behind the curtain and you see that your god is basically a a bank of computers. Well, I, I I'm not saying that they were able to go behind it. I'm not sure there's other access to other computers somewhere in the ship. Maybe they just okay. don't know what those computers did. I don't know. I'm I'm just trying to come up with an idea here. Yeah, I, I understand that. Yeah, you're we're, we're trying to give them the benefit of the doubt. Uh, yeah. We're spitballing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> spitballing. So, and now Nat Natira is uh, without her head implant. They've taken it out. And she's opting to stay behind on the Inada and, and help her people make it to their final destination. It's pretty noble. Yeah. Pretty noble. And, you know, while we have a minute here, I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about another uh, book reference. That is uh, the novelization, the novel of the motion picture, mm -hmm. Star Trek, the motion picture. Uh, when they come back together, it is mentioned that McCoy had spent the time between the original series and the motion picture studying the medical technology of the Fabrini people. Oh, wow. Yeah. So at the end of this episode, she, you know, uh, Kirk offers to uh, meet back up with the Fabrini people in, you know, 390 days or something of that nature when they are going to reach their destination. And uh, he offers to drop McCoy off so he can hang out with her for a while. And 
he smiles and sort of in this tacit acknowledgement that he wants to do that. So that kind of fits. Yeah. Yeah. So it's Very nice cool. to know that McCoy got to be uh, with her again. Yeah. So pretty cool. Pretty cool. So we're going to we're going to get the panacea here in a moment where, uh, you know, everything is being resolved. And as as they're on their way out of the Oracle control room, Spock conveniently notices there's a bunch of memory banks that contain a wealth, a significant wealth of medical knowledge. And amongst that medical knowledge is the cure to McCoy's affliction. Yeah. So pretty cool. They've, they've got the ship righted. It's going back to automatics. Spock fixed the engine. They're back on course. All is right with the world. Mm-hmm. Now, do you... Why do you think they introduced this? Um, and do you think it changes the way McCoy thinks in this episode is giving him this death sentence at the beginning of the episode that you cure by the end. Um, it makes a lot of McCoy's choices this episode really easy. It does. Uh, I almost would have preferred where you didn't have that McCoy one year ticking clock and he still decides to stay behind. I agree. It would have made for much harder decisions and a much more dramatic episode uh, in my mind. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it would have created this depth to his character beyond, you know, I've got a year to live, YOLO, you know, why don't I just, you know, be this this woman's, this high priestess's <laughs> husband for a year. YOLO, I love it. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's true. I mean, that, that really outlines his whole reason for staying. He's like, well, why bother going back to the ship? I'll just kind of hang out here, be happy for a year, and then I'll just, you know, drift off into the sunset. Yeah. You know. So, oh, well. Another question before we wrap up. All right. Another question for you. So in your mind, is the prime directive one way? Is it a one way deal where they don't interfere with other societies, but they are allowed to appropriate whatever technology they want from those societies as long as it serves them? I think so. I mean, if you think about it, their whole mission is to sort of uh, discover new worlds and new civilizations. So, um, it really wouldn't be fair to their mission if, you know, it's akin to going to a foreign country, eating a dish you really, really like, and then not getting the recipe. Uh, I guess I, I, you know, I'm, I guess we really didn't see, I assume that they asked if it was okay if they borrowed that method to cure McCoy. Yeah. I mean, it, it looks like Spock just grabbed whatever data tapes or made copies or whatever and just took them back to the ship. But, um, I don't know. I think it's kind of hypocritical that yeah. we're not allowed to interfere in alien societies, but we're allowed to use their technology to interfere with our natural progression. Right. Like in in time, we probably would have figured that out, how to cure that disease. We hadn't yet. Yeah. So instead, we, we cheated and just got the answer from aliens. But Right. At any rate, the episode is now over and it's time for our essential voting. All right. Uh, I'm just going to jump right in and say, unless you can convince me otherwise, and I don't think uh, multiple phaser banks do it for me um, or a terminal disease that's cured by the end of the episode, uh, I am going to vote this episode non-essential as much as I enjoy watching it. Yep. I don't think I'm going to be able to convince you because I can't convince myself. So a uh, non-essential vote from me as well. Uh, nothing necessarily uh, earth-shattering here. No 
recurring new aliens, uh, no no significant character moments, and I as much as it pains me, so I'm gonna have to give it a double non-essential vote. Hey, it happens every once in a while. It does. But all right. Yeah. Well, that brings us to the end of episode sixty-three, and we mm. will see you next Sunday for the Tholian Web. Yeah, this is uh, one I've been looking forward to. Yeah, it should be a, should be a fun one. So take it easy, everybody, and we'll talk to you soon. The common thought was, of course, that he was uh, had a very uh, an unhappy marriage, divorce, with a daughter whose name was Joanne, who we never got to. We were going to do a series about her, uh, not a series, but a, an episode with her. And of course, the third year they sent us down the sewer. We didn't get to do that. Uh, Would have been interesting. They were talking about bringing her on board. I'm sure that had they brought her on board that our captain would have had eyes for her in some way that could upset the hell out of McCoy, I tell you that. It all seems rather indecent to me. But he is a southerner out of the south and uh, I think just was such an unhappy guy that he joined the service and decided he would, you know, abandon what practice he had. And uh, that's about all that was really ever known about it or thought about it. You have lived a lonely life? Yes. Very lonely. This episode first aired during Star Trek's third and final season. Our audience was declining and everyone connected to the show was feeling pressure from the network. Although we beat the Klingons and the Romulans, we eventually were defeated in the ratings war. In past seasons, we had been up against shows like My Three Sons and Gomer Pyle. The last year we were on the air, our competition was Judd for the Defense. In the three years we were on the network, we never did better than 54th place. But at that time, who would ever have thought what a phenomenon Star Trek would become over the years? Dictatorship by computer. Decisions made by a cold, hard, calculating entity that leaves no room for dissent. It doesn't get more efficient than that. But it's hard to imagine a less compassionate form of government than a computer. In Star Trek, these electronic despots fortunately never survive beyond the end of the episode. Thanks, of course, to James T. Kirk. <laughs>